Hey there, Bible nerds. Welcome back. It's time for The Bible in Context. My name's Evie Kirkendall. I am a seminarian at Bright Divinity School, and I'm also a candidate for ordained ministry here in the United Methodist Church and a lay teacher in the Sunday School program. I, you might have seen me running around the church on Sunday mornings teaching the Wesley Bible Study. So if you happen to be around, say hello. I'd love to, love to chat with you. Today we're starting a new book for our Bible in Context. Today is our introduction to the book of Exodus. Really excited to be part of that. Remember, this isn't a line-by-line -line Bible study. This is going to be more of a contextual uh, flyover kind of view of the book of Exodus. We're going to talk about uh, a little bit of the historical context of Exodus so we better understand it in their town so that we understand what the author meant. Uh, what the audience would have heard whenever they heard or read this being uh, in their culture. Then we're going to start uh, thinking about the things that separate us from, from that context. We're going to think about things like the amount of time that's passed, the covenant relationships that have changed since uh, that day to Christianity in 21st century. We're going to think about languages. We're going to think about all the things that separate us from them, and we're going to build a bridge over that so that we can better, in our day and time, get a little bit more out of our reading of Scripture because we understand a little bit more about where it came from. So that's where we're going to be starting today. We're going to be with Exodus. Um, if you have an opportunity, pick up yourself a Bible that you like. Uh, pick up a pen or a pencil, maybe a highlighter if that's your thing, and let's dive in. Get comfortable and get ready for our introduction to Exodus. So the first thing that I want to talk about is who wrote Exodus. Um, much like the first five books of the Bible, they're all attributed to Moses, although there is no real consensus about if Moses was the person who actually put pen to paper. In fact, most people agree that he probably was not the person who wrote it, um, that it is attributed to him, but uh, and it very well could be that it was his oral tradition that started it, but he is probably not the guy who wrote it down. Um, most scholars agree that the book of Exodus was written very much like Genesis by several different author groups. They have different names, and I'm not going to belabor them, but if you want to dig into it, I'd be more than happy to go over that with you one-on-one -on -one at some point. Um, but it's these five groups that um, patchwork quilted the book of Exodus, Exodus together, uh, just like they did Genesis and uh, several other books of the Bible. They all influenced the final version that you read today. Now, when was the book of Exodus written? Well, um, with many historical documents like Exodus and like the Bible in general, nailing down a specific time um, without some really, really specific hard evidence is very difficult. So, most scholars agree that there is a, a window in which Exodus was, was probably written. Somewhere between 950 and 550 BCE, before Common Era, um, that's usually the, the era of time that most scholars agree that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, uh, were written. Um, most scholars also agree that it was around 550 BCE that the Bible, uh, at least the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, gelled or formed in its current existence and really minimal, if any, changes happened after that point to the Scripture. So we can say that, that that's a pretty good window for understanding when it was written. Now, when it comes to the 
the covenant relationships, we have to remember that um, we are talking in the book of Exodus about a covenant relationship that's very, very shallow at this point, meaning that there isn't a lot of covenant relationship going on. Now, of course, um, if you're keeping count, you have the covenant that was made with Noah. That's number one. That's the first covenant we kind of come to. That's the covenant God made with Noah after the, the flood that, uh, that let the world know that God was no longer going to destroy the uh, world with a flood and that was on humanity's side. That was the symbol of the rainbow. Then we come across two covenants that are pretty much the same. One was a condition, uh, an unconditional covenant, and then one is a conditional covenant. So we have the, um, the unconditional covenant that God made with Abram, and then we have the conditional covenant that God made with Abram. So the unconditional covenant, God says to Abram, you're going to be my dude, and you don't have to do anything for it. I'm going to make a great nation of you. You're going to be amazing. All of your kids are going to populate more than the, the stars in the sky and the sands in the, on the beaches. Um, and you don't have to do anything for it. It's completely yours. It's, it's a gift from me to you. Then uh, a few verses later, we get to the conditional arrangement where God says essentially the same thing, but then there's the hook, the catch, the, the you have to do something, the quid pro quo. Um, you, Abraham, have to show that you are uh, my people forever and ever by the use of circumcision and certain other restrictions. That's going to demonstrate to the world and to me as God that you are my people. Then we fast forward and then we get to the covenant that's going to be revealed in the book of Exodus. And that's going to be the Mosaic Covenant or um, it's also referred to as the Sinai Covenant. That is going to be the big covenant that we all saw. Charlton Heston crawl up the mountain, come down with the tablets and smash them together at the end because he got upset. Um, that's the Mosaic or the Sinai Covenant. And then we keep going and then we get to the Davidic Covenant, which comes a little bit later uh, in the uh, Hebrew Bible. And then we, the last covenant, which we feel that as Christians we operate under, is the New Covenant that's first mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, where um, Jeremiah reveals that God has a bigger plan, something new and fresh and different, where it's not going to be about teaching people anymore. It's going to be about a covenant that is written upon your heart. And then we see that fulfillment in the New Testament. So those are the, the big covenants that we operate under. But in this book, we're really only operating under those first three, the, um, the Noahic covenant and then the, the unconditional and then the conditional covenant of Abraham. So we don't have those understandings yet. So don't try to take off those lenses as you read through the book of Exodus and just consider what it would mean to your, to the faith tradition of the people in the story, um, only having those two covenants and only having those two kind of big touchstone revelatory events in their lives. So the genre of this is a historical-ish approach. It, remember that when we're talking about books like Exodus and most of the Hebrew Bible, we're not talking about a journalistic, historical account by our standards. We didn't have somebody walking around with a pen and paper taking down notes about what was going on during the book of Exodus. Um, we are probably looking at a period of time, sometime well in the future, where 
people are realizing that this history of our people is really important. So we should probably document this and we should probably keep this story and this tradition alive in our culture. And the best way to do that is to write it down. So we switch from, at some point, an oral tradition of communicating our traditions to a written and oral tradition of, of this communication. And that's what we see here is the book of Exodus was probably written during that time when they were like, hey, we need to be writing stuff down. And so it's written looking back. There are several times in the text that you're going to see uh, a name of a place or a name of an event. And it's going to say, and it keeps that name to this day. That lets us know literarily that this was written sometime in the future. We don't know when, we don't know how far in the future, but we do know that it was written sometime in the future and it wasn't written contemporaneously. So what did the author intend? I think that that's a question that we all have in mind. Um, and from a scholarly perspective, um, the first portion of Exodus is a narrative that brings God into the lives of the Israelites. And this is not a small thing. Um, what really I think is the important factor here is that we have a people who are enslaved. And when we talk about enslavement, we talk about the, we have to consider the things that go into enslavement um, if we're really going to understand just how powerful of a statement that this revelation by God is. So the first thing that we have to do to an enslaved people to make them enslaved is we have to dehumanize them. And that's an uncomfortable reality. We have to take away the things that make them human so that we can then see the, that group as property. So we have to take away things like their native language. We have to take away things like their native religion. We have to take away things like their autonomy. We have to take away familial connections. We have to take away cultural touchstones. We have to take away all the things that humanize that group so that they can then be seen as tools, as cogs of a greater nation. And that is what's kind of going on here with the Israelites and the Egyptians. The Egyptians at some point um, after Joseph, um, the Egyptians decide the Israelites are no longer our equal. They are now going to serve our culture. They are going to build our big, great things. They are going to serve as free labor or minimally paid labor. And we are going to benefit from that. And in return, they are not going to eat with us. They are not going to worship with us. They are not going to be able to speak their own languages. They are not going to be able to worship in their own way. All of those things are going to be taken away from them. We see that throughout the, the Bible. In fact, when we talk about the story of Joseph, one of the things that Joseph has to remind uh, Pharaoh is that when he wants to have dinner with his family after he discovers them, they're not allowed to eat in the presence of Egyptians because that is anathema to God. God would not want that. Their God would not want that. Their gods would not want that. So it becomes very important that they separate themselves in their eating traditions, in their worship traditions from the Egyptians. And that goes back to the book of Genesis. That's when the Israelites were looked favorably upon, or at least as co-equal. Now we're moving into a period of time when the Israelites are not co-equal, 
when they are completely separated. In fact, they can be punished for those things. They can be punished for practicing their faith. You have to remember that the dietary habits of the Hebrews and the Israelites um, were eating animals. And think about who did the Egyptians worship. Many of the Egyptian gods were based on animals. So for a group of people to eat animals that were representative of another culture's gods would be heretical. And so you can kind of see where this tension probably um, at least is a part of it. It might have started there, but it's certainly a part of the tension between these groups. And so the interjection of God into this environment where we see uh, God actively choosing a downtrodden people, a people that are down and out. They are not the powerful group. They are the people who are the oppressed. They are the people who are the marginalized. They are the people who cannot do anything on their own. They are property of someone else. That is a very amazing theological point that I think is worth considering whenever you're reading through this. The the choice that God made not to choose the people in power to be God's people, but instead choosing the downtrodden, the people who are not in power, the people who are the marginalized. That is a very powerful theological statement about the character of God and can definitely influence, I believe, what we see our mission as Christians is today. Well, that's where we're going to wrap up today. We're going to pick this train of thought up in our next episode where we dive a little bit deeper into a few of the features of the, of the story of Exodus, things that might want to jump out to you that I'll want to bring to your attention. And until then, we will see you next time. Have a great day. God bless.